To the Serious TV Drama Podcast. I'm Scott, and joining me on this long gestating TV chat, first, the bestest from the Midwestest, it's Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Hey, good to hear, good to hear your voice. <laughs> and with her, the man who rested his case with the utmost of grace, it's Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, how y'all doing tonight? I know I'm excited to have the two of you here because I, you'll have to remind me, I don't actually remember the last time all three of us were on a podcast before because I neglected to do the research to look it up. <laughs> it's been a while. No, I've, you know, I've done, it, has, uh, it has been a minute. Well, we, 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 we sort of kind of got the band back together again. You know, we, we, got, we got, it's three of the Beatles and, you know, we, we killed off the other one a while ago, just, just like the real Beatles. Anyway, <laughs> this is our now and then podcast. <laughs> oh, which, which means I must be George Harrison because as of late, it feels like I've been dying. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so let's just say I've had some major life distractions that have kept me away from the mic. I mean, I didn't realize this until today. Uh, Brian, I literally got massively sick the very day I released our last STVD podcast, which was at the end of August. And apparently I was, I don't know if I let on during the podcast or not, but I was like feeling more and more ill <laughs> as that recording went on. And then into the night, it got really, really, really bad. And then I took a couple of, you, you know what, tests at four, at four and then 4.15 in the morning because, you know, I took two in a row because I didn't trust the first one. And the second That's one, right. and the second, the second, you know, the first one, the line was light. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe it's full. Maybe, maybe it's not, maybe it's messed up. The second one, line was dark. Oh, no, you got <laughs> And I've had a cough from it ever since, which has interfered with well, the recording before. That podcast was funny because you had had a cough going into that podcast, and you said, "Fortunately, and hopefully, it will stay away." And about two thirds of the way of that podcast, you coughed, and it, and the dam broke. And yeah, I think you muted a few times in that podcast, and and I noticed it came on towards the end of the podcast, and and wasn't there at the beginning. Yeah, it's kind of like what people say back back in the day when you go out drinking and you're like, you don't want to crack the seal of going to the bathroom because once you do, then you're going to keep having <laughs> to right. go. So it was the cough version of urination, I guess. Right, exactly. It you know, cer certainly pissed me off. Ba -dum -ba -dum. Anyway, <laughs> so back to why we're here. We, ha we are returning now. We actually are returning with the first of two back-to-back -back pods this week. Each one of these is going to cover three TV series that have either just finished their seasons or their overall runs. So, let us get this podcast started. With the limited series, I suspect all three of us most wanted to talk about. And by that, I'm talking about The Fall of the House of Usher, a Netflix series that was created, written, etc. by Mr. Mike Flanagan. Now, 
While the overall series is, of course, a serialized story that both figuratively and ultimately literally follows the rise and, of course, fall of the House of Usher. And by the way, I love that it literally falls. Uh, <laughs> once you get past the first episode, which is titled after the iconic phrase from the opening line of Edgar Allan Poe's, you know, 178-year-old poem, for God's sake, The Raven, the rest of the episodes are all named after different Poe stories, and they all, at the very minimum, pay homage to the original works, either through tenuous inspiration or at even times direct adaptation, albeit in a modern setting. After that first episode, which I would say serves, I would say, as both prologue and introduction for the plot and premise of the entire series, the House of Usher kind of snaps into this macabre countdown of death as we toggle through time, seeing the origins of how Roderick and Madeline Usher rose to power, and in the modern day when we watch as their damaged and often morally bank bankrupt children each meet their death in unique and ultimately <laughs> rather grisly ways. Now, as I had said online a number of times while I was trying to entice other people to give this series a shot... It's kind of like we were watching the story of Succession, but through the darker lens of Edgar Allan Poe. Now, one difference, of course, is that while true, one of the children is a public relations titan, she's kind of small potatoes compared to the scale of a Logan Roy, and the family fortunes have not been made via media empire, but pharmaceuticals. In fact, one can say a lot of the series is meant to serve as a, I would say, a rebuke or vicious referendum on the opioid crisis. We'll probably talk a little later about how successful that swing for the fences turns out to be. But finally, and I really, this is probably going to pre-echo something I know Brian wants to talk about as well. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we were, we're going to talk about a number of people in this cast, a handful of whom I believe do some of their best work, be it in a Flanagan production that they've appeared in so far, or even their overall careers. But I really want to briefly focus on two. Most of the setup and spine of this entire series is a late-night fireside conversation between Roderick Usher, portrayed by Bruce Greenwood, and Assistant U.S. Attorney Auguste Dupin, played by Carl Lumbly. Now, while every character in The Fall of House of Usher, in fact, takes their name, either from a character in a Poe story, or even in some cases a person from Poe's life, be it his mother, or even a writer of his era that he detested, the one that merits mention... Most, I should say, most merits mention is Dupin, because he's someone who actually appeared in three different Poe stories, The Mask of the Red Death, The Mystery of uh, Mary uh, Roger, and The Purloin Letter, uh, which kind of like might be like the biggest Poe story. They don't really get into much in, in this series compared to all the others, but that doesn't really matter. Now, one can posit that Dupin was actually the original fictional detective. Even if, if you read those stories, he's never identified himself as such, but he's basically Sherlock Holmes 40 years before there was a Sherlock Holmes. But betting, getting back to these actors, Lumbly and Greenwood are character actors who have knocked about Hollywood for decades. They have more than 80 years' worth of credits between them, from the theater to various TV series to plenty of feature work, even voiceovers and animated series and so on. But I think there's something really extra great and fun watching these two aging warriors of words sitting across from one another, setting up a dynamic of direct opposition, as well as the intimacy of two who have known each other for literally a lifetime. It's a friend, at times it's a friendly chat. It's the relating of a ghost story. It's a debate. And it's ultimately a confessional. Both of these men are at the top of their game. Both deserve high praise for those scenes. I would say perhaps more than any others in the entire series. Okay, 
that's my big preamble. That's my intro for the show, my intro for the podcast. I'm now going to throw it to Jamie and Brian, and then we can get into the specifics of the series. Maybe we might even have a debate about, you know, how we some of us feel about Mike Flanagan and his body of work for the last 10 years. I'll go ladies first because Brian was most recently on the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> and we and we didn't figure it out ahead of time. They've both been patiently just watching me, like all right, tapping their hands like the, as if they had a watch on. <laughs> and Jamie, I know you've been wanting to talk about this for weeks, so go for it. Yeah. Um, first of all, a uh, huge fan, huge fan of Flanagan. Uh, started with, um, you know, what five years ago? So five years ago, he put out. The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, and five years later, on the exact date of the release uh, of the fall of the house, we've got a five-year sobriety chip. And I think that is so awesome that he announced that that was his his fifth year sober um, because watching this and then going back and I have rewatched everything up to this after I binged this in like two days, like the first two days it was out, I binged, but knowing that information and going back and watching this theme of sobriety and addiction that weaves its way through all of his works into this was like perfection that this was, this was the big enemy, the pharmaceutical company. Um, it was, it was beautiful. And of course he, you know, he's got a few good jump scares, um, <laughs> but more than anything, Flanagan has a way of making the dark and detestable beautiful, uh, and this was exactly that. Like, he he didn't miss any beats. Yeah, I, I think uh, I tried to put this in context in preparation for the podcast, and my my thought about Flanagan and what I find compelling and I found compelling about this show. Um, a lot of horror is fear of unknown fear of things we don't understand. And there's an element of that, but a lot of what he deals in, um, is ignoring things. Um, you look at midnight mass, um, you know, the people see what's going on, the, the the Usher family sees what's going on and they disregard it to their peril. Um, and so what I think is is the, the psychological horror that he's a master in is he builds dread um, that, you know, something is going to happen and, you know, it's going to happen not because, um, you know, the, the devil has come to earth. But because the devil came to earth, showed you his face, and you still wanted to make a deal with him. Um, I mean, you look at Midnight Mass, uh, you know, the priest willingly goes to the tomb, makes a deal. The townsfolk willingly go and do this crazy stuff that the priest wants. Um, so I've, I've always enjoyed his slightly different, uh, you know, it's it's not... It's not a matter of, you know, 30 degrees off, but he sort of tilts the angle that he approaches uh, his stories with in that way. And in that way um, of dealing with the dread, what he does that I find interesting to me, and it was interesting to me, it's interesting to me in my work and my life's work, and that is 
he sets up these these moments of dread where people have made a deal with the devil and he spends the time telling you why and you understand why um you 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 don't you may not agree with them but he fills out the narrative of his characters to explain why they can't help but drive the car off the cliff and kill themselves and i think that's what's so um I think that's what makes it such interesting viewing to me and so many people and that element of his work. Um, I, I really, really enjoy um, some of his earlier stuff. I think some of it was good. It wasn't great. And I'm sure Scott has some opinions on Dr. Sleep um, that will be shared. <laughs> uh, knowing Scott is a big Stephen King fan. Um, but, you know, his Netflix work. If I yes. was a C, if I was an executive at Netflix, in the same way, if I was an executive at FX, I would say, okay, Graham Yost, Noah Hawley, what do you want? Like, I want to keep your work here. If I was Netflix, I would say to Mike Flanagan, hey, when our deal's up, what can we do to keep you here? Because he's been a very uh, compelling uh, uh, person to to tell stories that transcends simple humor and or simple horror sorry simple horror in, in my opinion absolutely wasn't there wasn't there some conflict after um it was before midnight club i want to say it was midnight mass wasn't there some major conflict he was having with netflix that he almost left or he did leave and came back um, they basically wanted to switch like half of the storyline that he had presented, um, and were pretty demanding on really like inconsequential things like, um, oh, like your hero character is searching for a job. Why? Well, because he needs to be, he's, you know, he's, he's out of prison. He's back home. He needs to be looking for work. I mean, silly things like this, um, to the point where, he he was he was he was wanting to just throw in the towel on everything. So somebody somebody there knew what they were losing uh, with this guy and and got him to come back around somehow. Well, um, I know that Flagon had a lot of issues with Netflix in regards to uh, the Midnight Club. And actually, unless I'm mistaken, this may, this might, this pro, this project, the Usher project, that might actually be his final Netflix project. I think okay. he, I yeah. think he's shift. He, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think he's shifting over to Amazon Prime. Uh, I think that's what's, that's what's going to happen. And it might be as a result of uh, the, the things that you had mentioned. I don't, I don't know the exact details. I mean, one can certainly Google things. Um, he did say, I'm looking at one thing that's mentioned on, uh, on the webs here that flag and actually took the Tumblr to reveal his plans for a season two. and did not keep his dissatisfaction with Netflix a secret. Then I see another thing here. Um, according to Deadline, Flanagan and Macy's deal at Netflix is about to be up, and they were exploring other options. Now, that was towards the end of 2022. Um, I see other articles that keep mentioning he's leaving Netflix for Amazon. This is one from Fangoria, which is, you know, famous horror magazine. Um, so may maybe that is what's happening here. 
Um, that, that is what's going to happen. Here's another one. Horror Maestro Mike Flanagan ditches longtime home Netflix for Amazon. Okay. So unfortunately, uh, well, not unfortunately for us, because we'll still get to experience his work. It just means, right. you know, unfortunately for people who maybe don't have Amazon Prime, well, I guess now you have another reason to go spend even more money. Um, even all these streamers are really... I, I'm, I'm thinking about all the people, you know, who a few years ago were all like, I'm cutting the cord because I'm going to save money. It's like, and it's like <laughs> guess what? You know, you got like five or six streamers right now because Disney's about to shoot up in cost. Who, um, uh, Apple is going up in cost again. Paramount's going up in cost. You know, uh, you know, obviously Netflix and who, whatever. It's like, oh my God. You know, <laughs> hey, remember that cable bill? I still, and I still, I'm the idiot who has all the streamers <laughs> and, and never got rid of cable. So I think I'm spending more just on television than anything else in my life. But wait, if you get product like Mike Flanagan, you know, maybe it's worth it. Um, getting back to the, the, the actual series, um, what, what I really, one of the things I really enjoyed about it, and I, I'm going to say this, I think I find that it works dis- in spite of itself because the, the structure, if this was a movie, and say it's your average movie length would be what two hours, hour night, hour forty five minutes, unless you're, you know, Scorsese or Christopher Nolan, then it has to be like four hours or something. But you know, but normal people, two hour movie, right? And so that therefore you would have to compress this story within a two hour time frame, which would mean it wouldn't get to breathe, and the characters wouldn't get to really thrive the way they do throughout the series. I mean, thrive until they're dead, at, at least. But when you do it in an episodic fashion, we, we, you kind of, once you get past the second or third episode, you're, you're, you, get, you, you fall into the, okay, I guess I, and you go like, wait, how many episodes are there? How many kids are there? Okay. I, I kind of see where this is going for the next several episodes. So basically at the beginning of every episode, it's like, okay, who, who's going to be the one who's going to go this one? How creative are they going to be with, with the demise? You know, obviously there's more stuff going on, not in terms of character as well as plot, whatever. But you know what I'm saying? That right. The, the, not not to mention you go, yeah. Oh, the, oh, what's the name of what what Poe work is the name of this episode mm-hmm. that this character's mm-hmm. involved in? And, and 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 how closely are they going how 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 closely are they go there? I mean, we I mean, come on. We knew early on, once they established one of the kids was working on stuff with, you know, with the heart. It's like, okay, I don't even have to look at the list of titles. There's going to be a Telltale Heart episode here. And they tried to make, they tried to throw us off early on when they have Bruce Greenwood, like, staring at that brick wall. Even though, like, which we know from the get-go, okay, someone's clearly buried behind the wall. That's about as obvious as you can get. They're not even trying to hide that, really. But it's like, no, it's got to be her. It's going to be the beating of the of the mechanical heart, or whatever the hell the damn thing is. And of course, it's exactly what it is. You couldn't get away from that. You know, there were other things that you were kind of intrigued by. Like, wait, are they really going to? Are we going to get monkeys in an episode? And yeah, we got monkeys in an episode for the murders in the room morgue. They, they, I gave him a lot of credit for that. We went that way, even though he cut it. Quite frankly, I, th- I almost wanted him to go a little bit more further with the the violence and gore in that episode because I I thought he kind of like nah I, I wouldn't mind a little bit of seeing that character's face get ripped off but whatever um, <laughs> still pretty terrifying though. yeah no it is it just you know we could have lingered a couple more seconds but 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 what I'm saying is but the generally speaking if I'm watching again what was this refresh my memory was it eight episodes or nine episodes i forget it's an eight episode series right eight 
eight. Yeah, because yeah. it's one episodes one, episodes eight, and the kids are and get killed two through seven, which are six episodes. Makes sense. Six kids, six deaths. Got it. And that's what I'm talking about. It's like, okay, uh, you almost want to knock, you're almost tempted to knock something for the predictability of it because, well, we know where this is going and, and, and pretty much you can kind of figure out where it's going to end as well. Because <laughs> even though I, I, I loved it, but I had, I, I know I laughed out loud when I realized, oh, wait, the house of Usher is literally going to fall down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. And, and I almost, I, I wanted to slap myself because I should have seen that coming like, from the get-go, when they, when they first were going into that house. Like, oh, that, that house can't last long. I didn't know they were going to go poltergeist on us. You know? Yeah, I, as I was thinking about uh, the, some of the other through lines that, that I really, you know, you just brought it to my mind. Um, I mean, gosh, what a turn Bruce Greenwood gets in this movie. I mean, you know, a really, really solid actor that's done a lot of great work. But, I mean, he really gets a big, meaty role here to play. Um, And I think, uh, you know, Flanagan's done a really good job of sort of grabbing some of the underappreciated actors um, that that don't get to shine and finding newer people um, to to populate his cast with. Um, You know, I think... What what's the the guy's name? I'm sure Jamie knows it. The kid from Friday Night Lights that was in Midnight Mass. The the guy home from prison. Um, what's the actor's name, Jamie? You remember? Uh, no, I don't, I, I don't remember. I, give me one second. You're talking about Zach Guilford. Yes, yes, Zach Guilford. Guilford. Um, yep. You know, I mean, that guy sort of been a little MIA for a while and got a really good good role in that and. Uh, Whatever talent he has, uh, he, he makes really, really good use of. And uh, um, But Follow the House of Usher, I mean, I was so excited to see it. Um, and like you, Scott, I thought, what what can be done with Poe? And I, I mean, this was like seeing a really great, and I mean great, cover band that didn't dress up like the original artists and ape them but like played the songs but played them in like with their own feeling and their own emotion and put their own spin on it right uh because he he didn't just do a tribute band to poe he actually really used the inspiration Mm -hmm. of poe and stayed true to it but told the story with staying true to what poe was about and i mean you have to think i mean he dedicated the whole thing to, to the three lines of, of poem is so true to so much of it that, that it's really quite shocking uh, to see that amount of, yeah. of dedication to, you know, somebody who probably kids today, I don't know if kids today read Poe. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if high school kids read Poe. I did. I'm sure you did. Um, My eighth grader uh, read Telltale Heart about two months before this came out. So it's kind of opened the door for him to be more interested. Um, I know that it. I know that it's it's like a cliche thing to say, but the 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 sentiment that it's like a love letter uh, to his work is probably pretty appropriate in this situation. Um, He did everything. It seemed 
to to honor it um all, all the way down to just like wrapping up the entire the entire show with spirits of the dead like doing the you know the narration of spirits of the dead at the end mm-hmm. um and it was great because there's a handful of those maybe two or three of these stories that i never did read but it was great to be reminded of all of them and like how cool they were the first time I read them and how they were kind of like the first, the, the first like literature that I really remember having like, you know, a twist, you know, there's always something they didn't quite see, but then it made total sense and it felt so real. And uh, he was able to, even with all of these like crazy ideas um, was able to still like, contain that and bring it all the way through the story where it's like everything seems just a little bit crazy a little bit over the top but then also like no no that that seems like it would track that i can see this being real um maybe because he holds on to the reality and the pain of situations he doesn't like try to soften it up or make it anything other than it is uh but that's something that Edgar Allan Poe always did is was able to take the like parts of your brain, like you were talking about earlier that we avoid and laying it out and being like, this is just part of who people are. This is, this is just, you. this is how things are. Yeah. I think, I think that Flanagan fully embraces things that are bittersweet. And, you know, I think back to, to, I mean, how many how many sort of poignant bittersweet moments have been in these series and you know the haunting of hill house and you know the the sense of loss and grief and i think back i mean two of the most soul crushing things i think of zach guilford's character and the woman in the boat in midnight mass Uh out in the water and in this i mean you know, kudos that he didn't make, you know, what a lot of horror people would be in that sort of the sort of torture porn of just killing people by numbers. But, you know, in the end where the mask of the Red Death character uh, takes the young girl and, yeah, you know, yeah. like, I, I mean, I'll be I'll be That's honest it. with you. I didn't see that coming. Like I and it kind of shocked me for a second when she started talking to her. I thought. Oh, like there maybe there's some way out, and there just wasn't. And you know, true to the deal she made with you know uh, with the brother and sister, you know, she took yep. his granddaughter. And uh, the deal, I thought that was, the I deal that was, was a great made, twist. but she, but still, at the end, she had honor, uh, which is yeah. kind of a funny thing to think about. But yeah. she honored the deal, and she honored she honored this young soul's place in the world and uh, allowed her to leave painlessly and gracefully. Um, that was, yeah, that was, that was a big tear jerking moment, <laughs> but it, it meant some, it wasn't, it wasn't just like, Oh my gosh, this is sad. It's like, Oh my God, this means so much. Like this is meaningful. Everything that happened up to this point, this is this she's she's telling why, you know, why this is meaningful without saying this is meaningful because right. um, is is beautiful. Yeah, it's 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 the one it's the one death of an innocent in the entire uh, production. 
as far as I can recall, at least to my best of my recollection. And once we find out what that deal is, um, in via the flashbacks and whatever, um, one has to know like, Oh, that, that means the granddaughter. So I was waiting for that. I was like, there's no way around that. And that's like, she's the only one who doesn't deserve it. Cause everyone mm-hmm. else pretty much. And, and some characters who initially might have not seemed so bad, but then as this episode, as this, series wore on they became like the henry thomas character uh, Fre- uh frederick Fre- yeah. frederick uh usher um how he he goes from being kind of schmuck, you know you know a, a schmuck to just pretty kind of pure evil where he ends up so yes. that, in, a, in a way he almost has um i was talking joking with my friends about you know which of the demises did we enjoy or whatever the most and you know we went back where they said you know what the, the the henry thomas one might be in some ways might be the best one because it's the one that's going to take the, that was taking the longest and he and yep uh verna sitting with him and, and talking with him because and she and unlike all the others that was the first time she had encountered him that we saw yeah. her whereas all the others they she somehow became a little part, a, a, a thorn in their side or part of their lives. Whether it was as the patient for, um, oh, what, what was her name? I have it all, I have all, I have it all in front of me. <laughs> you know, oh, 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 Victor, you know, she was like the patient for Victorine or she was the, 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 the person from the ASPCA, <laughs> whatever type thing <laughs> for, for Leo or, or, and so on and so forth. Um, it seemed like this was the one that she actually had some enjoyment or relished because of the awful things he had been doing right up until that very moment. And the fact that they came up with a very creative way to pull off the pit and the pendulum. And I was like, Oh, that's really, Oh, that's really something. Well, well done. Well done, Mr. Flanagan. Well done. And I have to mention, so we're talking about some of the performers, like you were talking about Zach Guilford and one of the nice things or things I find really enjoyable about what Flanagan's been doing with these multiple series, you know, is that he's invested in a specific troupe of actors. You know, and this is a tradition that goes all the way back to, I think of, you know, Orson Welles and, you know, the Mercury theater players and how you'd use those actors all the time, right up through people like Scorsese and other people who use the same kind of actors quite often. Um, Carla, Gugino, Gugino, yeah. whatever, who plays Verna. Mm-hmm. And I've seen her in a lot of other things over the years, good and bad, whatever. I think this Rocking might be her Rocking with be- Polly Shore back in the day. I think this is her best thing. This is the best I've seen her. I think I think I liked her more in this than any other previous Flanagan work. And I, I think it was a very interesting and at times perhaps even difficult role for her, I think. But I think she really pulls it off. And by the way, it, I don't know how many episodes it was before I realized that Verna, <laughs> you know, you rearrange the letters. It's the Raven. It's like, oh, wait, because she's the Raven who's at the beginning and at the end. She, she's Raven. Ah, that's mm-hmm. so smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think another shout out that, that we've got to give. I mean, out of nowhere, yep. we get a really cool performance by Mark Hamill. There we go. Yeah. You, yeah. Yeah. What a great character. Yeah. Another guy who goes down with honor, like doesn't like yes. he served the ushers. Yes. He doesn't make a deal with her. He may be their shady fixer, but he's their shady fixer. 
and he'll go, you know, he'll keep his mouth shut and go to prison. He's not taking the deal. Like, but, but that character of just being like, you know, you need something done. He'll go do it. I loved his character. I thought he was a great addition to the cast. I thought he was wonderful in this. He, I felt he stole almost every scene he was in, even, even if he had minimal participation in the scene. And, and granted, there is a part of it for, especially for the geekier among us who are just, you know, you get little almost goosebumpy with joy, like, look, it's Mark Hamill, and he's doing something like this. It's so cool. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we know he's a talented dude, you know, when it comes, especially when it comes to his voice work and whatever. And, of course, he's iconic as Luke Skywalker. But, geez, he just uh, – I, yeah, and you're right. The, the scene – I'm going to – I'll just say it now. My favorite scene in the entire thing – is the scene between um, him and Verna at the house. You know, they have this mm-hmm. the conversation. Yeah. We've been, we, we, there have been hints about this, you know, around the world uh, expedition he was part of. And they still never give us all the information. And I really enjoy that they did that. I love that they did that um, because I think we get enough. And we can just fill in a li- those little gaps ourselves, and perhaps make come up with the most hor- e- something even more horrible. You know, it's, al- it's almost Hitchcockian in that way, where the more it's the more you imagine of how bad something might be, really works. And yeah, he he's he's a, he's a thief who does honor <laughs> with honor, you know, as opposed to well, quite frankly, most of the family for that matter. So yeah, you're absolutely right to point him out. I I, I totally agree with uh, doing that. Um. Uh, Y'all talked a lot about Flanagan and his work, and I had mentioned at the top, uh, I wouldn't say there's going to be a debate. I don't think this was going to happen here at all. Um, I am a fan of his work as well. Um, I, I just, maybe it's because I, there's very few creators, if any, that I think don't have, you know, there's issues with things here and there. That, and that's just, that's just par for the course. And, you know, and the more you do, the more likelihood you're going to find that. I don't care if what writer or director or actor, whoever you are. Um, I still think even after all this time, I'm still going to go that Haunting of Hill House is still the best thing he's done for Netflix so far. This is close. This was very good. This was close. But I think for me, I think that that's just perfect. And maybe, and maybe it was just the surprise of it also helped with that as well. Cause I went into that not, I mean, other than knowing about the original story, whatever. And I think the fact that that was soon, that was later followed by the haunting of blind manor, which I actually think of all of them is the least of his work. I, while there's really nice moments and it, it, it certainly looks beautiful and some good performances too. But as a story and as and being satisfied with it, I, I just never really cared for it that much. I didn't hate it. I was just like, ah, okay. Like if I had done what Jamie did and did a rewatch, I would probably skip that one personally. I probably was like, nah, I can move on to the next one. I'd rather watch. My only issue with Midnight Mass was I had issues with the final episode and I thought people were being stupid. And I don't like watching movies or TV shows where I think characters are being are being needlessly dumb. But everything else about that series was so good, I, I was willing to forgive it. Because it wasn't a horrible final episode. It wasn't like the first season of The O or something like that. But uh, <laughs> but I was just, I just, I just felt the most disappointing episode of the entire series was the final episode. And that's... You- that- that that's my issue with midnight. Man. You defeat vampires by doing a dance where you all form a cross. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you defeat vampires. Yes. 
this whole I'd be like, wait, wait. Flash mob, this, flash mob fighting. This whole this whole island, wait, this this no no one has a basement? Anyway. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know anything about vampires? Oh no, the sun's cut uh give me a break. It, it, and, and I just have to say, Scott, there is one thing that we have to talk about. Okay. And, and this is my last point, so we can move on, because obviously Jamie and I can talk about this ad nauseum, but um does Mike Flanagan have a problem with cats? Oh my god! You know, I have a I have another friend, and she hasn't watched that much stuff. But she she's a big she really likes a good horror movie or horror story. She likes being scared, whatever. However, there's one thing she does not like, and she will not watch if she knows about it ahead of time, and she'll get very upset. If she doesn't know about it, and then it happens. She doesn't like seeing cruelty to animals, and specifically and especially cats. Cats and dogs, probably, too, but she's a, she is a cat person. She, that's her thing. I remember I was watching Midnight Mass, and I was all ready to be recommending that to her. And then you had the, the shoreline. <laughs> of the, I was like, nope, nope, there's no, nope, she, nope, she, she'll be out. Nope. I'm watching this. Here we're going, you know, episode by episode. I'm like, oh, excuse me. Oh, there's the cough again. And I was like, oh, she'd really, I bet she'd really dig this. She, you know, she she probably knows Edgar Allan Poe, too. I don't know how big, how big a fan she is, but she's a big reader and a literature. You know, she's an English teacher, blah, blah, blah. And then the cat episode happened. Well, you, the episode before the cat episode, when, just when we found the dead cat, that alone made me go, oh, no. Like, okay. <laughs> okay. It's brief. I was like, but it, it's brief. We didn't actually see it happen. Ah, maybe I can still. And then the next episode happened, and then there's the moment with the thumbs, <laughs> and, and the cats. It's like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> All right, can't watch this one either. It can't happen. Is it? I could. Well, it reminded me of. Do you guys remember the old miniseries, the the Tales from the Dark Side? Oh, of course. It was like oh, yeah. the 80s. And there's the the one story with the cat where at the end the cat ends up jumping down the throat of the man in the wheelchair. Oh like God. I just remember that scene. Like I, it haunted me when I was a kid. In this that. entire episode, I kept going, "Oh my God, that cat's gonna jump down his damn throat! It's gonna happen!" I think for some reason, other than the opening and the guy saying, "But there is a dark, a dark side." side. The only episode I remember that show to the life of me, I think there's one where Jerry Stiller is playing like this really nasty, mean radio talk show host. And it's just, it's just him <laughs> in the chair. And as it goes on, he see he's slowly becoming basically a monster or the devil or something. I don't remember what the point was like, okay, he's a bad guy. Oh, and he turned into a devil. All right. Wow. <laughs> is Twilight Zone on next? Can I watch that now, please? Please? <laughs> Um, the only other thing I was gonna, I would have mentioned, which I thought was kind of funny about the series, as I noticed it, um, because um, I know that Rahul Kohli, who plays Leo Usher, has had been in uh, a couple previous one. What am I trying to say? Flanagan series. Uh, I've already seen him before. But then when they also brought in, um, let's see if I have his name at my disposal. Please tell me I do. And if I don't, oh, look at that. I, for, You know, I, I did a screenshot of the cast, 
so to be ready for this. And the one guy who's not he- here, I got Carl Lumbly as Dupont, but I meant the actor who plays the younger version, and I don't have his name in front of me, and that's to my regret, because I wanted to point out that both he and Rahul Kohli are, are both from um, iZombie. Uh, the show that used to be oh. on on CW, and they're like two of the three. That's like two of the three main characters. So I got to think, what's her face is going to show up in the next one just to get all three of them. Uh, the one, I guess she's on that ghost show or something. Now I can't think of what her name is off the top of my head. Is it? I want to say Rose McIver, but I don't know if that's what her name is or not. All right, so I, I think we've 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 covered it pretty well. We, we gave it about as much time as I thought we were going to, because I know that it was the one that we most wanted to talk about. So we are really gonna <laughs> gonna change gears, pace, genres, whatever, for something that I hadn't planned on talking about until this very week, and I decided, you know what, let's talk about it. Let's a little show on. Apple TV. I actually discussed this all by my lonesome on a little solo podcast I did a couple of years ago. But now I get to talk about it with at least one or two. I don't know if you both watch or not. I, don't, I know one of you do. And I'm talking about The Morning Show. The Morning Show, which is on Apple TV. Obviously, the show with um, Renee Witherspoon and Jennifer Aniston. And if anyone's wondering creator-wise, because uh, I always like to look up who's behind these shows. Because, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about Mike Flanagan and that just so it's always good to know who who did the other things we're going to talk about. Uh, people behind the show: Jay Carson, who basically comes from House of Cards, and Carrie Aaron, who had been the producer of Oh Friday Night Lights and Bates Motel. Um, does that give me any hint about what the morning show sh- is or should be like? None whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not even a little. All, all, all here's here, I'll, I'll just start off this. Like this, and then I'll throw. Uh, I can toss it to to Jamie, I guess. Again, um, the first season of the show, which is the one I talked about on, a, on an old podcast, I really enjoyed the first season quite a bit. I thought it was a very cool um, and fascinating take on what what had been happening in our culture with the Me Too movement and how figures in media and and, and what they try to get away with and it goes all the way to the days of Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose and all the others and I thought the casting was really spot on especially when they had had Steve Carell on that series it's like oh that's the perfect person for that part because you know generally so likable so when he turns out to be a scumbag Mm -hmm. or it, it works so well for it I however was not a big fan of the second season of the show I'm not saying it was a bad season I'm saying it wasn't very good <laughs> because there were at least two major, major storylines that really either I thought were a, a big total waste of my time and should not have been done in the first place. That would be the Steve Carell one or B I just didn't believe it. And I had a hard time with every scene that happened. And that was the ongoing relationship between Renee Witherspoon and the Juliana Margulies character in season two. I got lured to season three because some guy named Ham <laughs> was going to be on, <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know, I'm I, I like ham and Swiss, <laughs> I like a good roast ham, and I like a good John ham. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I I give it I give it a shot. I give it a shot, and I'll say that I'll, 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 I'm gonna do a Brian now. And let me say this: 
let me say this. One of those two things I mentioned from season two, which I thought was really done poorly or bad, I think they kind of reversed it in season three. I really actually liked all the Margulies and Witherspoon stuff yes. throughout the season from beginning to end. Why it works so well this season as opposed to the previous season? Yes, I can. One can point to the different conflicts that were going on, or or that flashback episode, which was really, I think, one of the best episodes of the entire series. Maybe that really helped it as well. I think that really you saw the the rise and fall of a relationship as well as others in that episode. But I thought I really I, I believed it this time. I, I saw what they could see in each other. I saw why it would work and why it ultimately it didn't work. And that was the thing that kind of, that, that stood out as one of the things that really impressed me about the season because they took something that I hated in the previous season and they made it something I really appreciated in this season. So I'm going to take my foot off the brake, <laughs> off the pet, whatever, and, and not do what I did with the previous one. And I'll, Jamie, I'll let you uh, tackle this one next, if you like. Sure. Um, first of all, uh, Billy Crudup. That's it. Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup. Every scene with Billy Crudup, I am a hundred percent invested. My God, he is so fun to watch. The way he delivers dialogue is—it's—it's just—it's—it's it's so fast. It's like a ping pong ball thrown in a small room. It's just—it's so fast and it bounces off and. It's great. Um, I really, really love Greta Lee in this. Her character, uh, Stella Bach, is very intriguing and interesting. And the challenges that she's facing in this season on becoming successful, but like battling the, am I going to be one of those people in order to become successful? Um, I'm, I'm like you. The relationship with, with Laura and Bradley in this season is, for whatever purpose, far more believable and important and meaningful um i i really liked this season i i liked the last three episodes of season season two i wasn't as much of a you know naysayer on it but it's 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 not what season one was but uh the the last couple episodes were good but this season nailed it first episode to the last episode i thought every single one was interesting and uh, also really weird to me that Paul Marks and Jennifer Aniston would have so much chemistry, but they really did. I, I love that you refer to one by the character name and the other by the <laughs> actor's right, name. Right, and by the other was, one by the actor's name. I don't know if that's a credit what to John Hamm that you, you saw him as Paul Marks <laughs> and not John Hamm. Yeah, that was I'm, a little I'm, weird. Whereas Sorry, Jennifer Aniston is always going to be, well, it's, it's Jennifer she's, Aniston. She's <laughs> just Jennifer Aniston. Anything. <laughs> now, for my turn, uh, Jamie made me watch this. <laughs> and she made me watch it because she said, have you watched the morning show? And I said, no, I haven't. And she's like, oh, well, I, I wanted to talk to you about something. So, of course, it piqued my interest and I started watching it. Um, so I've watched all three seasons up until like the middle of season three, I started and watched it all and then finished with the weekly rotation of the last, you know, few episodes. Um, so I don't have 
I don't have a long view. I have a fairly compressed view on the show. Um, but I will recount a few of the things I texted Jamie once she made me watch it. Okay. <laughs> you two are so um, cute. Bastards. Uh, one of the things, one of the things I, I sent to her was that, that I know you didn't like it, but, uh, I think there, this show does a better job, I think at redemption than, than some other things I have seen. I'll be curious how, if it has a fourth season, Bradley gets redemption, um, because Bradley, I go up and down on. Sometimes I'm frustrated with her. Sometimes I like her. Um, I love Corey. I mean, I think I texted Jamie like I could just watch Corey all day. Like Corey is amazing. Yep. Um, I thought really great this season. Since we're talking about that, I thought there were uh, uh, there was a little more space for Nestor Carbonell and Nicole Bahari as the new you know hosts of the morning show. And I thought they both had really good, really good roles in what they did. I liked both of them a lot. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to realize I didn't know where I'd seen Nicole before, but she was Sleepy Hollow um, and was on an episode yeah. of Black Mirror. Yes. Um, so, uh, but I, I, I liked the two of them a lot. I like the producer that uh, had slept with Steve Carell. I forget her name. Uh, that that was promoted to the you know Mia. running, Mia. Mia. Yes, Mia. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, I'm a sucker for some Mark Duplass, man. Like I, I'm a sucker for that guy. <laughs> like, you know, the the tussled, the tussled hair, you know, overworked, underpaid producer who, um, follows around. But but the thing that that bugged me the most, uh, the thing I don't like about it. Uh, is I, I just don't, I don't like Aniston and maybe it's a me thing. Um, but I feel like even on this show and maybe it's a statement about this world that she seems so transactional in everything, um, that, that, and, 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 you know, maybe that's how I'm supposed to look at it as she you know life makes her be transactional and i'm supposed to forgive her a little bit um you know h- how many warnings does she get for all the things she does <laughs> and she ignores them all because she knows best and ends up in trouble um so uh a couple of the storylines uh i thought this season tried to maybe dip its toe in succession waters Anyone else feel that and even hear music that made you think of succession in the last couple episodes? Um, well, yeah. I, I, when you're dealing with someone, you're dealing, well, you're dealing with a billionaire, you're dealing with a boardroom vote and you're dealing with taking over a media. I mean, that's basically succession. Something like sure. this kind of, kind of really reveals just how good succession is because right. It's, right. It's, I mean, realize it's, not, it's not in that league, but that's, it, you know, it, it's not, but, but I tell you what, I tell you what I liked the most, um, because it surprised me. And that is towards the end, there were two turns by Paul Marks, John Hamm, 
where he was both incredibly menacing, incredibly Mm -hmm. menacing, and then incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I love that guy. We all love that guy. Um, we all know he can do distant, cold, vulnerable, uh, (laughs) personable, you know, personable, likable, affable. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I don't know I'd ever felt menaced by him the way he pulled off some menace, uh, towards the end of that season. Yep. And it makes me hope that maybe we see some of that in Fargo. Uh, yeah. Interesting. He, I mean, he is, yeah. I believe he's the main, I think he's the main protagonist in this season of Fargo, unless I have that wrong. I think it's, I think it's like a father son duo that are the protagonists in this. It's him and, oh, and one of Jamie's favorites, uh, the, the kid, or I guess he's a, well, he's not really a kid, but a uh, dude from uh, Stranger Things. Actually, we yeah. both, we both talk about oh, we talk about that. Is it Finn? Was, yes. No, 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 no. Steve. Yeah. Steve. Oh, Steve. That okay. Steve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, I'm, I'm very, I'm fascinated to see that dynamic and how. And in fact, I keep seeing pictures with John Hamm with a big old. 10 gallon hats. <laughs> I'm kind of enjoying that because <laughs> basically when you see, when you see an actor and, and of course someone like John Hamm, we just watched 10, I just watched 10 episodes of this and you know, then there's, you know, there's Kimmy Schmidt and there's when he would appear on a bunch of other things or Saturday night live, whatever. Yeah. But it's still, there's still, my brain still locks in on Don Draper. So when I, so when you see him with a cowboy hat, I'm like, Oh, look, John Hamm's playing dress up in here, you know. Yeah. <laughs> did, did he get a little hat for? <laughs> did he get a little hat for his hamaconda too? Anyway, um, speaking of, well, maybe not speaking of which. It's funny how you mentioned how you didn't like Anderson's character, right? Um, I was talking about this with uh, a friend of mine, Tiffany, who I usually talk Survivor with, as I've mentioned to Jamie a number of times. Um, and no, not the Tiffany who appeared on this podcast a million years ago. There's a different Tiff. I, I, I know, I know, like three Tiffanys. Um, she she watches the show and she was talking about it with me and for her she actually doesn't like either Jennifer Addison's character or Reese Witherspoon's character she just likes all the other characters and she was she thought, I'm, I was rooting for I was rooting for Paul Marks over the other two <laughs> it's my favorite <laughs> character of the season and I said to her well this is why you and I always only root for the villains on Survivor. <laughs> this is the kind of people we are. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I mean, I really did enjoy John Hamm's character on this, and I, and you just hit, you basically hit exactly what I would, where I would have went. Because that, those were the moments that made me go, ooh, I haven't seen that before to that extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there is a, there is a, there, there can be a couple, if you go back in time, there are, there are a couple kind of uh, almost oddly chilling moments with Draper and Madman, but nothing like that, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned Mark Tupas. Mark Tupas has just cornered the market on just basically, even though Chip is probably the most affable version, he basically specializes yes. in playing assholes. <laughs> I mean, because, 
by the end of the day, Chip is still kind of an asshole. You know, he 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 may be an asshole that you you we root for at the end, especially with his whole diatribe on the morning show, which is kind of beautiful. But it's like, yeah, he always. I, I think that's his thing. <laughs> I think that's his thing because I keep you know, go back to the league, oh, king of the assholes. You know, you, you know. But, or, but he's your asshole, right? Uh, well, well, uh, right. I, I, I don't know where your eyes are. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an ass. I have a duplass. Oh god! Then, oh god! And the character you played on that season of <laughs> of, of Goliath that one time, where it's like he's like super creepy asshole. Um, yeah, like I said, it, it it was an enjoyable season. You know, they they definitely I I like how they kind of touch on actual news events that have happened and how they kind of work them into the storyline, which works because it's the whether it be the morning or evening news, these are, this is a news program. So whether it be everything with January right. 6th or even even how they dealt with COVID in the previous season and going into this season as well or or, or other things that kind of like, oh, that happened around the Roe v. Wade kind of overturned situation. That, play, that of course, has to play a big part. And I love how they made that such a ma- major thing because it's happening at the same time where the big reveal of, you know, that that Alex is ha- is clearly ha- has a situation going on with Paul Marx and so on and so forth. Yeah, it was a very enjoyable season. They actually renewed it for a fourth season several months ago, before the season even debuted. It was already Probably renewed. before I even knew and watched it. Probably. Uh, yeah, it was April, so yes. Um, at least, well, I don't know. I don't know when you two are talking to No, I'm just kidding. Um, also like seeing Holland Taylor, by the way. i am always been a Holland Taylor fan. Um, she actually made a uh, ends up being a surprise uh, appearance and several appearances in uh, a show we'll be ta- I'm going to be talking about towards the end of this podcast. But I, I've always, she always has a nice presence to her, and I really enjoy her on this. I love her interactions with uh, Billy Crudup. I, I love how the two of you really raved about Crudup and the Corey character. Um, I don't necessarily disagree, even though it would be better for the podcast if I did. But um, I look at him as it, it's funny. You have John Hamm on the show, who's famous for being Don Draper, who's the guy who came from an ad agency, and Billy Crudup's Corey. He and everything he does, the way he talks, whether it be the speed or the type of the language he uses, he's constantly selling. He's a salesman. Yes, he is. All he, he's, <laughs> so every line that and and what's interesting about that is that then you oh, what and what makes him an interesting character to me at least is because that's the way he is. You can never be sure how sincere he is, and I think that's the way people react to him. Characters react to him, so they don't know. Is he being is is he being honest? He because oh, if everything you say sounds like a lie, does that mean everything you say is is a lie, or maybe it's just a misperception and everything you say is true? He, that, that's I think that's kind of for me what makes him a really interesting character. And it's like, and he because yes, you, we see moments of vulnerability or whatever, and but he has he has more of a veneer to him than the on than the characters who are the on air talent. Who are the ones who you think are supposed to have that veneer? Like Alex or Bradley are the ones who should have that, and they don't. He does. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that's one of the. I thought that was one of the really interesting things uh, about the series from the from the get go. I mean, going back to season one all the way straight through to this season, and I, there and even though it, it was maybe not you know uh, 
edge of your seat, oh my god, cliffhanger ending, there are a lot of open questions, and so I am glad that they are going to come back for a fourth question, as in what's going to happen to Bradley as far as the FBI situation, because I'm trying to see a way, a believable, excuse me, a believable way that she could possibly return to being a news person. I mean, it's it's a fictional show, so they can probably get away with whatever they want, because they can point to other uh, news anchor types that had some sort of scandal in their lives, and then were able to return to some sense of, of a job, whether it be, you know, Dan Rather, Once Upon a Time, with the that the false reporting with the, the, the Vietnam thing, whatever. Or even Brian Williams, you know, had his whole issue, and he left NBC News, but then he came back and was working on MSNBC, whatever. So it, you can make a comeback, I guess. So I, I guess that's, that's the route they can take. Um, and what's going to happen with Corey? Because the way this ended, I was like, okay, there's Corey... Feels like Corey's kind of out of a job, but you know we don't know. So yeah, I, I am looking forward, and and I think every season they're probably going to bring in, they have to bring in that one additional major character, because especially when we go into this season, because you weren't going to have the Steve Carell thing anymore, because you know dead. So you replace that with the John Hamm character, um, and that, I think that really helped because you provide us with someone who's initially or instantly likable but then turns out to be more of an antagonist than you realized which sounds a little bit like the steve carell character if you think about it um and they both kind of do horrible things you know carell might be a little worse in that regard because of what ended up happening i also like them also touching on the character who had uh committed suicide in season one Mm -hmm. and that having that moment so there were, I felt there was like so yeah. many things I really liked. I love seeing Tig Notaro just do, being basically being Tig Notaro because that's what she does. Like she basically she's the same character and everything she does is just a different outfit. She's either wearing a Starfleet right. uniform or she's wearing a suit, whatever. <laughs> but it's the, and she knows that, and she, I think she's made fun of it herself. You know, you know, she's a or she's a helicopter pilot for some zombie thing for Zack Snyder, but it's basically Tig Notaro. It, it it's like it's like Tig. Can you turn the deadpan up to eight? Oh my god! It's it's. But she's so enjoyable <laughs> to watch. I, I, I she is. You know, I, I almost wanted her. I almost wanted them to give her more like sarcastic lines in this. I just would have enjoyed it that much more. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed it as well. I was kind of, I was pleasantly surprised because usually when I get turned off from a show, it's hard for it to to hook me back in. And oh, I never. And as far as the two leads, I I'll, I'll be honest. I've not watched the show for three seasons, and maybe this is a good thing. I still haven't made up my mind how I feel about either one of them. And maybe it's because, and I'll, I'm going to give them credit rather than take it away. It's because of their storylines. It's because the situations kind of kind of make me go back and forth on them, which almost makes them more real to me as a result. Um, so, like, if you ask me right now, do I like the Alex character and Jennifer? I'm like, uh, I don't know. Do I like the Bradley character? Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I th- overall, here's where I'm probably going to just, for whatever reason, going to be different. I think I tended to like, I actually tended to like Alex more than I like Bradley because I, I think I just found Alex to be a more believable character and Bradley at times. I didn't quite buy the character at times. I, I, you know, the righteous do-gooder thing 
didn't play to me believable to me at times of the show um, as much as as hard as they tried to make make it work for me. But overall, but they're always compelling to watch, and that's why I watch the show. That's why I think it's a good show. Imagine that you like the woman from New York. And I like the woman from West Virginia. <laughs> That's so shocking, being from Kentucky, that so I like weird. her better. So weird. Go figure. I, I, Go figure. I'm kind of in the same place with the leads um, a little bit. I think not a, a huge drive of the storytelling in, in this show is that the moral line is always, always moving. And I think that Aniston's character has an understanding that the moral line is always moving and she's willing to move with it. And Bradley's is she can see that the moral line is always moving and out loud. She says she's not okay with it always moving, but what she does shows that she's going to move the damn line and, and go in the wrong direction if she needs to. Um, So one's owning who she is a little bit more than the other one. I sort of disagree with you. And here's think why. so? Yeah. Aniston needs Chip to see the line. Yeah? Like, he's... he's yeah? He, he, okay, he's, fair. He's like, he's like the angel on her shoulder <laughs> to do the right thing <laughs> oh. most of the time. He's not an angel, but he is, he is the voice she needs to hear oftentimes to get things right. Um... And, I, and, you know, that's what a produ- a good producer should be, you know, like. Uh, yeah, that's true. Br- I think Bradley's innate sense of the right thing is 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 far superior to her. She saw through Paul Marks. Um, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I do not disagree with any of that. I just think that Aniston's character is like. Yeah, well, this is what it takes to get the job done. This is what we do. Um, I'm going to... But I feel like Bradley's bring more... It. Bring it. Here's the thing. <laughs> the setup of the show, the setup of these two characters from season one right through to now, um, but more so season one, I mean, that's where it kind of was an inspiration, I believe. It's all about Eve. Because... Bradley is basically Alex 20 years earlier. Yes. Bradley is also on, and Bradley's on that same track. So, and as far as doing the right thing or whatever, well, yeah, except Bradley's the one who actually committed actual crimes and did some really kind of fucked up stuff. And yes, I know, I understand it's to save her brother, and I maybe I can't relate because I don't have siblings and I don't wouldn't care to. And I know it's, but you know, or maybe and, <laughs> I wouldn't care to. And, and maybe <laughs> and maybe it's because we find out, oh, she she turned in her dad, whatever. Um, you know what? I'll 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 I'll, I'll, I'll I'm more likely to lean towards a character who. Oh, here we go with the New York uh, West Virginia thing. I'm also going to lean more towards a character who like has a bit more of a, an acidic and cynical side to her 
than the uh, the wide-eyed fucking moron who should fucking know better at this point. You know, if I had to watch... Okay, now I'm gonna get mean. If I have to watch her cry in a scene and whining to fucking Juliana Margulies one more time, I was like, she should be breaking up with you, not because of what you did, because of right now. You get, get out of that. No, she just was annoying the fuck out of me. So yeah, yeah. You know what? I changed my mind. I've actually changed my mind. I've made up my mind about her. I don't like her. See? I don't like her. See? And you know what else? You know what else? She wasn't. <laughs> she wasn't even a good. She wasn't even a good uh, June Cash either. Take that. Anyway. You know what? See, y- you needed me, Alex. You're welcome, Chip. <laughs> last good thing she. Last good thing she did was election. Anyway. <laughs> Legally blonde hair up my ass. Anyway. With all that said. <laughs> Now something completely different. <laughs> well, th- I am, this will actually be a, 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 a probably a far and perhaps thankfully a briefer conversation, uh, maybe because only t- one or two of us have seen the series, and maybe because I've looked at the clock and I, I, have a, I have a time limit I've set for this podcast in my head. So the third and final series we will be discussing this evening, albeit briefly, will be Billions. Billions, which was created by Brian Koppelman and David Levine. Not not Levine, I thought, or Levine, because I thought maybe I did a typo. No, it's spelled L-E-V-I-E-N. What the fuck? Don't know. These two guys were previously best known as the screenwriting teams on movies like uh, Rounders and Oceans 13. And they co-created the series along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, which is interesting because he was formerly a New York Times reporter, also a CNBC show host. He's the dude who wrote the book Too Big to Fail. And you got to figure his knowledge and everything really factored heavily into the making of this series. Now, look, there's been a handful of series I've been told by any number of people, any number of times over the years, I really need to check out. And they're shocked that I haven't. You know, usually they're Showtime shows because I'm like, I don't want to watch Showtime show. Uh, and there's a bunch I still have not gotten around to it. You know, one of these days I'll watch Shameless, but still haven't, whatever. But one series I heard about a number of times was Billions. And maybe it was my Showtime, anti-Showtime bias, which makes no sense. I don't know why I have that. Um, and up until a couple months ago, I didn't even know that show was even still on. I, I thought I thought it ended like years ago. I wasn't still on. I decided... Just re- on a random evening. You know what? That show, it's got that Paul Giamatti guy on it. I love a good Paul Giamatti role. I'm going to check it out. And then within about two or three weeks, I blasted through 80 plus episodes <laughs> of Billions. I literally caught up to the show when it was hitting its 81st episode. So for just, I, I love the, I, I was like, look at what the plot synopsis is for, for television series when you, um, on the IMDb. So I'll, I'll just give that here, even though I think it's more ap- applicable to the first five seasons and really not so much after. Um, they describe it as billions is a complex drama about power politics in the world of New York high finance. Ooh, it's in New York. I must like it. Shrewd, savvy U.S. attorney Chuck Rhodes and the brilliant, ambitious hedge fund king Bobby Axe Axelrod are on an explosive collision course, with each using all of his considerable smarts, power, and influence to outmaneuver the other. The stakes are in the billions in this timely, provocative series. Okay. So now, I went through all those uh, seasons, episodes, and the sixth season I thought was somewhat unsatisfying compared to the previous five, and I think that was due in large part. You lost your, who I personally felt was actually the main character of the series. 
he was like taken off the board. It would be like watching a season of The Sopranos without Tony Soprano. But Damian Lewis, and that's an actor I always thought was kind of decent, if a bit understated. I know him primarily from Band of Brothers and Homeland. Um, and I know he played, and I remember him playing Steve McQueen in that brief moment in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I know he's been in some other shows that I haven't seen. Was it Life or something? Is that what it was called? Um, with this character, though, the way he embraces his inner machismo and the main joy of the series is just watching him either square off or even occasionally aligning himself with the always, always impressive and aforementioned Paul Giamatti. But when we pushed into the seventh season, they really had done such a nice job of continuing to layer and build up an unstoppable adversary with Corey Stoll's Michael Prince character. This is the character who essentially bested Bobby by the end of season five and pretty much kind of took over the series for most of season six. And then when you get to season seven, as we, as we get through episode by episode, all these people who have sided with him, counselors, cronies, whatever, they all end up inspiring a certain amount of animus in, in the viewer. I mean, heck, the lawyer, Kate Sacker, who used the one who used to work with Chuck Rhodes before going private and working for Prince, you know, does such a heel turn, such a massive heel turn, or seem I should say seemingly does such a massive heel turn. You almost want to see her aspirations and dreams crushed more than Michael Prince. <laughs> But when we get to the finale, I'll just say, look, I mentioned at the get-go, two of these three creators, and one of them is actually the showrunner for the show, they made their bones on scripts like Ocean's 13. I didn't know these guys would be... I never really took the time to do a dive on the show while I was watching it, up until I was writing notes for this podcast. But you look, if you knew that going into it, then you should guess... I bet there's going to be a long con at work here, (laughs) which there certainly is and was. But I got to give the show credit that, in my opinion, or let me just say, uh, (laughs) (laughs) they actually, I felt, stuck the landing with a pretty all-encompassing and satisfying payoff. And it worked. I I was like, okay, I, I, I like where this ends. I like, I mean, you know, a lot of times we talk about TV or movies, but more TV on this podcast. And I don't mind if I I am left wondering about certain characters and what where they're going to go and what's going to happen, whatever. And we don't really have that that much at the end of this series. We pretty much can see where they're all going to be going, and we're fine with that. But I don't. I'm fine. I don't. I don't need another season. I think it's good. You know, I, I, I w- I'd like to ask Mr. Giamatti to grow his facial hair back because I like him better beardy. But, uh, <laughs> but other than that, um, I mean, I, 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 I know, Brian, you actually have watched the show, so I, I guess I should stop talking let you. Uh, I, and I, I actually don't even know what your opinion is of it now that I think about it. So. Um, I, I, I liked it. I thought, I thought it was a semi return to form uh i thought Corey stall did a good job as a, as a foil and they'd been building him up for a little while as the foil you know the rising star to axe right um and and i don't know you probably do know scott i don't know if damian lewis left because of his wife dying 
you know, because of Helen McCrory got ill and, and died of, of cancer. Right. Uh, so um, I don't know if that was why. Or that not, was, but, that was part that I think that played a major part because at that, when that happened, he just wanted to go home and just stay in England for, for the time being. And right. that wasn't going to work for the show at that point. So he wanted, he left the show. And when you got to this season, well, basically they were able to work that in for several episodes. Right. And then he does come here, but it's probably not, he probably wasn't here for very long. But yeah, I, I had forgotten that, that, that Helen McCrory was his wife. And then I, I, I was, I actually realized it when I was like, wait, did he, I wonder why he left the show? Because why would the show lose that character that I read? Right. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I, I get it now. I, I thought they did a good job of massaging it. Um, but seeing him come back, you know, uh, it, it's almost like, you know, his absence did make the heart grow fonder that when he returned, there was a little bit of energy in seeing him come back. Yes. Um, and th- this show did an excellent job of, of being very morally ambiguous about him. Uh, in that times you would think he was a piece of shit and at other times you would root for him. Um, and, and so kudos to that. And at the end, I mean, you know, like, it's like, it's almost like an election, which bad guy do you vote for? Like vote for the one that's less worse. Right. Right. Uh, but, but you know, the, the ax character, um, and and his office, you know, the, the the people in the office that that have moved in and out of it throughout the years, um, I thought they assembled a nice bullpen in that office of, of sub characters that made it compelling. Uh, so I, I I enjoyed it. I liked the last season, um, and I did think it was time for him and Giamatti just like that being the dynamic. It had to end because you can't just have that forever, right? Uh, but so they sort of they sort of triangulated that in a different way. Uh, but I thought the ending, r- the ending really is where everybody would end up in real life. And I, I think that Koppelman and probably Andrew Ross Sorkin and most people know that, you know, the guys with the billions, unless you're Sam Bankman free, very rarely go down. Right. I mean, you have to be monumentally stupid, have terrible lawyers and be an, a moron to go down and the, the, the smartest guys with the best people win uh, and the guys who act too emotionally or silly lose and acts always could see the long game. Right. Right. One, one, one of the few things, one of the only things I wanted to point out that I what probably made me enjoy the series and made it so very watchable. That's the thing about the show. I'm not, I'm not claiming because, you know, I'm, I'm watching Billions and there's only a few months after watching the end of Succession. And I'm not, by any stretch of the imagination, like, like just like what I was saying before, um, when we were talking about um, a morning show or whatever the heck we were talking about, uh, putting something in the same league as a Succession, because Succession... Wait, wait. Is, Are you saying Billions isn't top tier? Is that what you're saying, Scott? No. I, I, th- <laughs> I, think, I, I think the tier conversation is silly. Um... <laughs> I, because I think there are some things that are really impressive about Billions that Absolutely. I actually enjoy more, perhaps. And I'll give you them right now. Well, I'll give you the silly thing, and then I'll give you the serious thing. The silly thing is 80, 84, 84 episodes, I believe. 84 episodes. 
which probably means there has to be, I would say, a minimum of 200, maybe 300 different movie references made throughout this series. References that I keep thinking most people in the audience are not getting, and I love the fact that they would do that, and they didn't care. Sometimes they'd explain it, sometimes they wouldn't, and I'd, I'd be like, wait, I, I know that line from something, and I would lo- I would literally look it up online, and be like, oh, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, who, kn- who knew that people in the hedge funds were like such movie nerds? <laughs> it was so impressive. The other thing... <clears throat> That's really uh, probably the thing I would commend the most about the series. Just about. Other than some a lot of fun use of music, by the way. A lot of fun use of music, by the way. Um, <laughs> you know, when they ended with that Slayer song alone, well, I'm not, I'm not, it's like, I don't ever listen to Slayer, but I kind of want to listen to this song. There are people sprinkled throughout this cast that I have enjoyed in different ways over the years. And I thought they all got really nice, good meaty parts here. And we got to go right to the top. Uh, other than one beyond Lewis and Giamatti, who we've already mentioned the reason the, the person I used to adore the most back in the early days of sons of anarchy was easily Maggie Sif. I had a huge crush on her. Her first seat, that season one of Mad Men when she's at the, the department store, heiress type, whatever. I loved that. She's a, she's a fascinating character and she, she might have more balls than any of the dudes on this show, quite frankly. I think she's great. But let's just come on. How can we not? How can we talk about the show before we end the podcast and me not talk about David Costa? How do you pronounce his name? Costa Bill? Costa Bill. Costa Bill. Costa Bill. Costa Bill, of course. Look, he came, he's come, he's been mentioned on this podcast a number of times over the years because obviously he was Gale from Breaking Bad. And when me and Dan would discuss him, we would often bring up how different a character that was from his ice cold killer, um, that he played, that he appeared as, as on damages back in the day. I didn't know he had this in his holster too. He, he his character wags is so much fun steals every other scene he's ever in you know i i i was astonished by how much i enjoyed him, him in such a part and then you can then throughout the, you know throughout the series you'll see like you know hey there's a uh, glenn fleshler as as their as Oren, the lawyer who you know usually plays you know scumbag killers or gangsters or whatever and i really enjoyed him alan havey you know the comedian, the guy who was, had a had a late night comedy show. Who, when Johnny Carson was doing his final episode, he just turned out the lights. And if you put on Comedy Central that night, it was just a darkened room, kind of like when, when Jamie just left her room a few moments ago. And <laughs> just there's like all these little things, and probably thing. And uh, good, uh, oh God, it's going to accuse me of being uh, woke now, probably. I think billions does yeah I see you laughing. Uh, <laughs> who knew that and I'm going to say right now I mean I don't I don't know what's going on in network TV so maybe there's a few other characters like that and maybe or Quantum Leap certainly has a character like that but a major important character like one of the main characters on this show who's a fascinating character so hard to read. So hard. I love trying to figure out what they're going to do next. 
and where they're going. So much great dialogue. Also a big scene stealer. Taylor Mason's the character. Asia Kate Dillon is the performer. We're, we're getting into the world, you know, it's, it's a, it's a transgender thing, but so good. And the way they treat that character and it's, it's handled so believably in this world of, you know, what was the description? High stakes finance, whatever. And I said, who thought that this would be the show that I think I, I feel has done the best job with that of any that I've seen. And certainly a character playing such an important part. You know, you, one can go to, you know, so-and-so on, I don't know, Orange is a New Black or something, or what Laverne, would, but small character, minor, not many scenes. Taylor is a major character. I mean, one of the top five characters on the show. So I was really impressed by that. Um, I'm glad I watched it. Very enjoyable. It was one of the best binges I've done in a while because it was like, I got to watch the next one. I got to watch. I, I can't go to sleep. You know, I, I, it's one of the shows I blame for my lo- my lack of sleep for the last uh, few months. So uh, I, I was glad I watched it. You know, top tier. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what well, is you, top you know, tier? You know, I always do. And that is the music in this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is great. I mean, you have you have Bowie. You have the the whole gamut, and I think it's hilarious. That do you recall the song in Billions before Angel of Death by Slayer closed the episode? Oh, 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 gosh! Oh, it's I, a great juxtaposition. It's yeah. a great joke. I forgot what it was, but I remember I really liked it. What the hell? Tell, just tell me. I can't remember. It's Beautiful Day by U2. Yeah, because he, he, he was, he, yeah. Yeah, it's Beautiful Day. And then they end with Angel of Death. <laughs> it's so, so delicious. I mean, uh, Koppelman, I think, is a guitar player. Uh, and I follow him. He's kind of seems like a really cool dude and really into music. And the music on that show is 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 stellar. Uh, and it, it was wonderful. And you know, and I, you know, there are comedians on that show. Uh, you know, Dan Soder played a a great right. role. Right, you right, know, right. as one of the dudes in the ballpen. And I forget. I, I know you know the comedian, the one that played Taylor's love interest, uh, fairly well known comedian. Uh, that dated. Oh, her oh, yeah. Life. It was. Um. Oh, he he had he had a, he had a Broadway show and even. Yes. Um, I I know the characters. Um. And I probably don't have him here because he wasn't in enough episodes. I know who you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, but, but I mean, great. they made a great use of of people, and that was a that was a surprising role. But but I think to speak to probably what I love about it, the Asia Kate Dillon character is that her character was seen for being good at what they did, um, and Axe empowered them to do that. Right. Like, and if, if I said. That her a minute ago, I apologize, but I know I believe their pronouns are they, be them. Yep. Uh, the the it wasn't you know it, it was ability, talent, and he looked completely past anything else and treated them just like everyone else. And and I thought the way that was handled was was wonderful. So yeah, I uh, that that was a, one of the great. One of the things that that the show should be, you know, uplifted for. But, yeah, it was enjoyable. And I thought the finale for what that show was, and I'm not, that's not a slam. Uh, but that that's, I thought the finale ended really well. And, and it, it's, an, it's an enjoyable watch. 
Um, yeah. I, I, I forgot to mention, but I also, because we're uh, speaking of someone like uh, David Constable before and, and such a dramatically different role for him. Uh, I also want to give a, a little shout out to of all actors, uh, the dude, um, what's his name? I have it right in front of me. Actor's name is Stephen Kunkin. He's the one who plays Ari Spiros, who's basically the every almost every scene with him is is he's he's more and more of a cringeworthy schmuck that's just goofy and weird. And that's the same guy who plays one of the most horrible, horrible, horrible characters in all of The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> so it's really, it's like, oh, so he can play pretty much, you know, just pure evil and pure ass, <laughs> pure idiot. Nice. Really nice. And also, <laughs> yeah. also, oh, and Terry Kinney playing like, you know, the, the, the really ice cold handler. And I keep going, wait, he's threatening? McManus yeah. is now a threatening dude, but also, but then there's another show that I actually just watched. Um, and if Dan was there, he'd be so happy. I actually binged two seasons of uh, the Mayor of Kingstown, and I if if I'm not if I'm getting my shows, I hopefully I'm not confusing shows. Oh no no, I am confusing shows. Never mind. That's Justified. He appeared on right. Was it Justified? He was the uh, the gangster. So apparently Terry Kinney's done a career turn, and instead of playing the uh, the the limp-wristed weak schmuck, he just plays badass killer motherfuckers. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, just to mention a few more before we end. I mean, don't forget we had a run with with Jerry O'Connell makes an appearance yep. in Billions. You have uh, Eric Bogosian. Oh yeah. You know, had a substantial run in it. I was like Bogosian. Uh, yeah, I, I like Bogosian a lot. Um, and yeah, Clancy Brown, you know, uh, made a run. And Rob Morrow. I mean, God, we haven't seen Rob Morrow in forever. Right. And I had the same thought, especially because he looks fine. It's like, wow. Oh, God, he looks great. I mean, again, I haven't looked up IMDb. For all I know, Rob Morrow has been on a regular on a series that I'm just not aware of, which is always possible because there's so many damn series out there. But yeah, you're, you're, when you start to fill out the cast, and you know Jeffrey Demun is, you know, his dad. Who yeah. I was like, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's one of the. Uh, we were just talking about how Flanagan has his player uh, always has his players. I always thought of him being the guy who uh, Darabont would always go to because yeah. he's in a lot of Frank Darabont movies, and obviously he he brought him in when they started The Walking Dead because he was um, the the old dude who ends up getting killed in the season that you know spelled the end for the show anyway season two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, I, like I said, very enjoyable show. Here's how I'll say, here's how I'll, I'll 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 mock the top tier thing a little bit. As far as <laughs> and it goes hand in hand with what I was saying about my feelings about Showtime in general. It's a top tier Showtime show. For a show for all the shows that I've I've made my I've watched over the years on Showtime, I would put it at that level. I'd put I it agree. at the level, you know, you know, Homeland season one I think would be there and then kind of falls off. You know, season to season, you know, still some enjoyable performances, but it gets more like it becomes less believable, more like 24 or something at a certain point. Dexter, we know how Dexter was. And then we know what what, De- what ended up happening. <laughs> you know, uh, me and Jamie, I, oh, maybe all three of us, uh, Your Honor, which obviously has a stellar cast. 
and I just wish they had the scripts that kind of <laughs> that matched the cast, you know, especially the first season. I actually like the second season better. Um, but you know what I mean? But, but this, I, I think this ended up, of all the Showtime series that I've watched over the years, this one just turned out to be the most enjoyable one, and that's what kind of worked. Um, yeah, okay. I think, unless there's anything else, I think I want to... Because I, I did Just wrap it up. Yeah. Although, yeah. Although I did, I did, I did like Mary Kingston. Just <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most subtle piece of storytelling. No. Be, and I think I, I get the impression that maybe that's a, uh, cause what's his name is behind that one too. Uh, Taylor Sheridan. That is his name. Yeah. Who's basically behind like every other show now, I guess, whatever. Um, and I like, oh, wait, he's the one who did Hell on High Water. Oh, shit, I really like that movie. That's better than all the stuff I've watched so far. Um, in that 1880, whatever movie. Um, <laughs> but you know what? Damn compelling. I hope Jeremy Renner's recovery, uh, keeps going in the positive direction for that horrible accident he had. So maybe he, there'll be, can be a third season of it. Yep. Okay. So wrapping up, uh, future pods, we will be covering, doing another one. Uh, this week covering three more TV series that have recently ended, and they all fall under the comic booky superhero genre. So we're looking at Gen V, Loki, and Doom Patrol, um, i.e. three shows that we should have been doing podcasts about in the first place if Scott, you know, wasn't like coughing like a maniac for the last couple of months. And of course, as many of our listeners know, Fargo is coming back. It's coming back with a fifth season. It's going to premiere with two episodes over on Tuesday, November twenty first. Yikes, that's coming soon. That's Thanksgiving week, goddammit. So hopefully we'll try to get her done and maybe Wednesday night so it can be ready for y'all before you dig into your Thanksgiving turkey or else <laughs> it's going to have to be later. All right, official wrap-up is if you enjoyed this podcast, you'll also enjoy hanging out on our Facebook page. Look us up. It's the Series TV Drama Podcast page. We're also available on most podcast platforms. You can find us on, especially on podbean.com, and you can access all 390, Jesus, of our episodes. And if you happen to use Apple Podcasts, feel free to rate and review us there. You can find us on Instagram, Series TV Drama is one word, and on X Twitter. that's what I call it. <laughs> Because it makes sense, because it's X Twitter, right? It's not Twitter anymore. It's X Twitter. I'm so smart. Uh, our handle there is at STVD Podcast. That's STVD, of course, as in serious TV drama. So I want to very much thank the two of you for reuniting, you know? So it feels so good. <laughs> <laughs> he shoots, he scores. <laughs> <laughs> all that <laughs> your son would be proud <laughs> uh look for and looking forward to uh recording once again with you shortly now i feel there's only one way to end this podcast and of course what's the best way to end the podcast with a poetry reading of course <laughs> <laughs> so because that's that's the way most major podcasts end don't they it's not a thing <laughs> I knew you loved someone named Annabelle Lee. You know, you, you know, the P the PO on podcast comes from poem. It used to be, but they sure it used to be poems cast. Poemed. poemed. You've been poemed. See, be, it would be the word poem, then an apostrophe D cast. Poemed. We're, we're going to change this to the STVP podcast. <laughs> oh, and then the cancer came. All right. That should have been. I'll be the next poem. All right, let's see if I can do this without coughing. <clears throat> so, 
it seems to make sense. We began this talking about the fall of the House of Usher, and the episodes that began and closed that kind of were a nod, both a quote and then overall to the Raven. So we'll, we will end this podcast with the final words of the Raven. And the Raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow to the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Good night, everybody. Thank you.